What's up, Open Floor Globe? This is Ben Golliver with the Washington Post. I am joined on the other line, as always, by Michael the Pod Pina. Now, Michael, we have been waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting for the NBA to release its health and safety protocol. They finally did that this week in a more than 100-page document. I reviewed it pretty thoroughly for a couple stories for the Washington Post. You guys can check that out. It goes into the details of what life will be like on the Orlando Bubble campus. It also goes into the details of how uh, games will be played, um, you know, in kind of a coronavirus-friendly approach. Um, And I also forwarded it to you, Michael, and I know you've reviewed it as well. So we're going to dig into some of the details here. Probably stay away from some of the goofy stuff like, oh, you know, they can't play doubles ping pong and uh, focus more in on on some of the important angles that we should be covering. But first, Michael, I want to turn the entire Open Floor Globe's attention to an incredible tweet that I read on Twitter from none other than yourself, (laughs) who wrote, the takes about the NBA coming back won't be a distraction is getting decimated by everything on my timeline tonight. Michael, you tweeted that, I believe, on Tuesday night as everybody was reacting to the hotel accommodations and who's staying at the Yacht Club, who's staying at the Grand Floridian. Um, everyone's you know peeling through all these other specifics of the NBA's plan down there in Orlando. And I wanted to start there because um, maybe I'm reading into your tone, but you sound frustrated. You sound a little disillusioned, maybe a little disappointed by the way that played out. Yeah, I mean, it goes back to a lot of the things that I expressed in our last episode about how the NBA's return would be, in many ways, just a blatant distraction from the Black Lives Matter movement. And I mean, my timeline, and I know I follow a ton of NBA people and players and reporters and media members and all that. So I I understand that there's going to be a heavy conversation about NBA related news on there, but it was just, it was flooded with just nonsense about hotel accommodations and the ping pong, all the, all the silly stuff that you mentioned at the top. And it's like, this is exactly what I kind of feared. And it's only going to increase uh, when games actually play and there's actual basketball news going on. So I think every time someone brings up the idea of players being able to amplify their message on a larger stage, I, I think it has to come with the required caveat that that may be true, but a lot of the conversation will also turn to what the players do, which is play basketball. And so that's just kind of where my frustration came from. It does feel like the reinforced message here needs to be, don't take your eye off the ball, don't take your eye off the ball, right? Where it's like, okay, we're going to be processing a lot of news developments here over the next few weeks with regard to the NBA. We're going to be processing a lot of game action, it sounds like, you know, starting in July as well. But there is a cause here that a lot of people are very passionate about. They've shown that over the last few weeks, especially whether that's the players themselves or fans like you're describing or media members uh, you're describing on your timeline. And there needs to be some level of balance. I mean, you, people are going to have to actively uh, you know, try to keep the protests front of mind. Otherwise, they could get buried. You know, on the flip side, Michael, I do think we need to give some level of credit to the NBA's rollout here this week. I thought it was fairly shrewd. All things considered, I mean, if we rewind one week, we're talking about, oh, to play or not to play, are the players going to bail on this thing? I think you had Adam Silver on Monday night on national television 
um, you know, come across very thoughtfully, come across very competent, especially compared to like Major League Baseball's commissioner who just went up there and started screaming that his life was a disaster. And um, <laughs> I thought you had a really nice exchange between Adam Silver and Damian Lillard, a guy who we, we talked about previously, um, where you did a nice job of capturing his mixed feelings about a return um, and your story with GQ. Um, and so you, you got to see something like that play out on national TV. And then you have the rollout of the information where they, they first put out the player handbook, which is like the condensed version of what life will be like in the bubble. And it maybe spares some of the gory details about how controlled and restrictive their lives will be. And it, instead, it kind of focuses on the stuff that kind of caught people attention, you know, the, the different luxury hotels, the ability to play, you know, golf, uh, you know, and all those kinds of, uh, you know, maybe a more positive spin on the entire environment. Um, that goes all over the internet. And then they follow that up with the full health and safety protocol. When you're digging in, Michael, I got to say, I was very pleasantly surprised and impressed with how thorough and well thought out and process oriented these health protocols are. But I have to say, if I was a player, um, I would be reading that and saying, wow, these guys are, you know, it's almost like a big brother type vibe. These guys are really going to be involved in like the day-to-day you know, actions of my life for more than a month and, and potentially up to three months. I mean, this is a, a really, uh, you know, a big imposition. And so I think the way the NBA laid that out to keep a lot of the focus on, you know, silver steady hand, but then also the the upside to the bubble, I think it really, you know, played well. And I, I would expect that it's going to wind up seeing a lot of players decide, you know what, I am going to show up next week when, when they're uh, required to report to their teams. And I have mixed feelings about that. I almost felt guilty myself after writing a couple stories about the bubble, knowing that those were two stories that wound up not being about the protest, as you're describing. But, you know, if we step back and say, like, how well did the league function as a business, you know, pursuing its financial interests, pursuing what it believes is the the best step for the league, I think you have to kind of give them a thumbs up here on this week. Do you agree? Yeah, I think that the the rollout was pretty smooth of the rules. And on paper, I think everything looks great. I mean, in reviewing the documents from the Players Association and the NBA, I mean, I personally can't really think of any scenario overall that was overlooked and uncovered. I think the, you know, the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed. My hesitancy in all of this is just like when the rubber meets the road i think things are going to get messy and there's just a lot of things that are going to come up events that they can't really prepare for until they meet them and so all of this is like precautionary all of these measures are precautionary but how do you confront something when it actually happens i think is the big issue here and we won't know that until games are actually played and bef- and and you know the phases are start to being implemented down in florida for sure i mean plans always look good on paper right michael um, and then mm-hmm. you know real life hits and you're dealing with 375 athletes and um, you're going to have them in three separate hotels and and three different gyms and you know seven practice facilities and that's just a lot of moving parts and there is going to be some level of risk baked in. The reason why I want to give the NBA credit for the health and safety protocol was because they did focus on almost every aspect of the game day experience and they focused on uh, every aspect of just sort of a quality of life experience and they tried to put themselves like I think in the player's position and you know protecting the players as much as possible so it starts with the tiered access right like the players are going to be tier one with the coaches and basically everybody else uh 
is going to be at a lower tier in terms of, you know, do they have direct access to the players? Uh, you know, something like the, the Disney World employees who are going to be clearing their rooms are never going to be in the room at the same time as the players, right? There's going to be no uh, direct contact possibility whatsoever. So that's a, a huge thumbs up if you're the players. Um, the media is not going to have direct contact with the players. It's going to be socially distanced at best and coming in a, you know, a very prescribed 30-minute post-game uh, format. Uh, you look at the arenas themselves, the players are not even going to be using the same entrance uh, as owners or agents or any other uh, you know business executives who are not part of those 35-man uh, travel rosters for each organization. So that gives them a level of protection there. And it even goes right down to the gameplay, Michael, where you're going to have uh, inactive players and second bench coaches wearing masks uh, during the games, right? The players and the main coaches obviously won't have to wear masks while they're playing, um, but, you know, they're going to be in a situation where there is a, you know, a extra degree of protection there. And also, I think it's the right visual message to be sending to your fans and saying, we're trying to follow best practices. We're trying to, um, you know, do what uh, the experts are saying. And it, it sends a nice message. One, frankly, that hasn't really come across from the federal government here over the last few months in terms of what we all should be doing to, to keep each other safe. And so I think that's nice. Uh, when you look at the gameplay, they went all the way down to snot rockets, Michael. No snot rockets, okay? Um, no no jersey exchanges. Um, they're saying trying to keep high fives and, uh, you know, chest bumps and that kind of thing away from games and practices. They're trying to limit those as much as possible. They're taking don't touch your mouth guard. Don't touch your mouth guard, right? They're also saying things like... Um, you know, for pregame and postgame meals, there's not going to be any buffet spreads, obviously, like we're accustomed to seeing in postgame locker rooms, right? Um, you know, guys are going to have to go back to the hotel to, you know, eat. And then also, they're going to have to go back to the hotel to shower, um, which, again, is is reducing risk by keeping people out of, a, you, know, a, uh, you know, close proximity indoors. I mean, bottom line, these guys are going to be wearing masks. They're going to be social distance at a, a lot of their lives down there in Orlando, which is going to take an adjustment. Um, but I think the NBA even built in a nice uh, ramp up to that in terms of getting them familiar with these pr uh, procedures as they work their way towards Orlando. So again, I think it was thoughtful and comprehensive. And I know that you had had some hesitations about, you know, would you go on the last episode? And I'm curious, did the health and safety layout change your mind at all? Did it nudge you over in this idea of like, hey, maybe I could go and make this thing work? Or are you still in the same spot? Well, so first of all, I want to point out one of the parameters that you didn't mention that I saw when I was reading the document, which is that player introductions will be pre-recorded. I think that that is hilarious. And I think we should just mention that. And I can't wait to see what that looks like on television or why that's even happening. I mean, why can't you just throw a graphic up on television and then to let everybody know who's in the starting fives and then like just play the games? I don't. I don't really get it, but I think that that's kind of funny. Um, and then, well, it, you know, it is it saves the players from needing to do the you know the dancing and all that stuff in an empty gym. I mean, yeah, to be honest, if, if <laughs> I was a player, anything. right? If I'm a player, I don't want to do pregame introductions before every game. To be honest, you know, no, like don't make me go out there and also the high fives and everything else. I mean, it's just extra contact. I mean, all of that is high risk behavior. So, to me, what they've tried to do here, and this might be the best way to put it. 
they realize that they actually can't change the five-on-five game itself. It's high risk no matter what. If you want to play a basketball game, you're indoors, you're in close contact, you're basically stuck, right? But everything else about your life that could potentially be higher risk behavior, they're trying to limit that as much as possible and in some cases basically eliminate the risk. And that's a great example of it. Yeah, I actually had another question for you that I don't think I saw in the doc about kind of just the gameplay and interactions between players. Is there anything in there that you saw about players not, you know, trying to, you know, when a guy falls over, you know, how players run towards each other to help each other up and they grab each other's hands and lift them up. Is there anything in there about, hey, maybe don't do that and let people stand up on their own to just limit physical contact? Because I feel like that is a that's a big one that we see with players. It is. I mean, this is only like sort of related, but this is the level of detail. I want to give our listeners kind of a feel for it. They actually had floor cleaning procedures and how they're going to use different (laughs) materials to scrub the floor. And so if a player, for example, let's say he was doing sit-ups on the court for an extended period of time, um, the, the people who are cleaning the floor would be instructed to like go extra hard in that area to really wipe it down just in case he was having extended contact with the court in that spot. So I don't know if you're talking about a guy who flops a lot, maybe a James Harden, he's going to be leaving these little marks that these guys are going to have to go around <laughs> cleaning up constantly. I didn't see anything about that. I really do think they're trying to keep the actual game itself as similar to a normal game as possible because they realize, you know, helping guys up off the court, that's a a practiced habit, right? Your whole life, um, it's going to be really hard to break that. So I imagine that would be okay. Um, But what they're trying to do also is limit any kind of, um, you know, team-to-team contact away from the games, right? So if you're going up expecting to have your elaborate high five or handshake or dap with your, uh, you know, opposing player, outside the yacht club at disney world that's a no-go you know they're, they're really trying hard to uh to prevent that including by the way these this idea of the proximity alarm now all staffers are going to have to wear these it sounds like it might be optional for the players but the proximity alarm basically will start beeping like a smoke detector if you get within six feet of somebody who's not on your team or not really part of your typical party. Uh, this is to- science this is science fiction to me i just want to be on the record with that this is like wild well, it's hilarious because, Michael, I hate science fiction. Like, I just, I can't watch those movies. I just sit there and say, this never happened. Like, nobody lives on Mars, you know? <laughs> like, I just, I don't go along with it at all. But when I heard about the proximity alarm and also the ring that they're giving out to players that potentially, if they want them, optional ring mm-hmm. that will kind of provide real-time health updates, I got to say, I want a proximity alarm around my neck and I want 10 rings on each one of my fingers if I have to go down there, Michael. Like, I want all of the technology. Give it to me. Why not? <laughs> I my fear or I guess not me personally but a conspiracy theorist fear there would be that that's just how they're tracking you and monitoring your behavior because one of the other things I want to push back on with all of this is the question of who is enforcing all of these rules you know I feel like there's a lot of self-regulation among players and teams just kind of uh, there's a dependency on them reporting on themselves and telling on themselves and in reading the, the, the document from the league, like if a team finds out that one of its stars broke a rule, it is on the team to report to the league that they did so. And just being honest, what team is going to report on its star player if they, did, if they were like playing cards in a room, not wearing their mask or 
you know, it says in the doc that they have to throw away decks of cards after they're used. If, like, Jimmy Butler wants to stick around and, and keep the same deck of cards the whole time he's down there because he's he thinks they're good luck, like, is the team going to report that? Of course not. So I, that's, like, a really silly example, but there are more serious rules that could be broken and it's just a big like honor system that i just have very little faith maybe i'm too cynical i have very little faith in teams actually reporting star players who break rules well look it'd be it would be one thing if the punishment was like your contract gets amnestied because then all of a sudden i think there'd be some owners who are like hiring private eyes to see if their players screw up so they can ditch some bad contracts (laughs) (laughs) i kid i kid um no i think that look there's going to be nba security heavily involved here there's going to be disney security heavily involved here um i always feel like when you go to one of those theme parks there's a real big brother vibe anyway I'm not sure there's going to be like drones tracking all of these guys everywhere they go, but I do think that if a player tries to leave the campus in an unauthorized fashion, there's a decent chance they're going to be able to figure that out, right? Um, And that could lead and should lead in this situation to the strict enforcement of the rules, you know, in terms of isolating players for up to two weeks and, you know, it's kind of like tough luck. You, you, uh, you broke curfew, there's no second chance because it it does put everybody's health at risk. So I would actually be um, not surprised at all if some of the card playing and and ping pong rules wind up being a little bit enforced in a less severe manner. And like the main rule is basically just like, don't break the bubble, whatever you do. We're trying to keep everybody safe here. Just please stick to the script. Um, But we'll see how it plays out. I mean, ultimately these are rules Um, rules are always open to interpretation. If we know anything about NBA players on the court, what do they like to do, Michael? Push the boundaries of the rules as far Mm. as possible. Um, And I imagine uh, we could see some masks around players' necks or masks, you know, wearing them like a headband or whatever else. And hopefully, um, you know, they they get the message and they stick to it. Um, Can you answer my question, though? Like, did this provide any peace of mind for you? Because, you know, I was... um, fairly wary of what was taking the NBA so long to release this policy. I thought it was almost bad faith of them to wait so long, you know, kind of keeping the players held up on what are the specifics of their lives going to be like here as they're weighing their decision about whether to show up or not. Um, I'm glad they put it out. As I've said, I've been impressed. And to me, it, it, uh, you know, kind of convinced me. It's like, these guys know what they're doing and they passed the smell test. Like they're, you know, they've created as safe of an environment as possible. What they're going to be doing in Orlando is absolutely safer than John Morant or Trey Young playing pickup five on five in an unauthorized summer league, right? There's really no question mm-hmm. about that to me. So I guess um, they've they've won me over. They've pushed me to their side. Um, would you say that your concerns about the protests still outweigh the health stuff, or has this given you some level of peace of mind? Uh, I mean, I don't think it's really an either or for me. I think they're both serious issues, but. I, I would say just in after reading it, if I were a player, uh, I think some of the stuff down there um, to occupy my time and my, my you know, there's going to be a lot of dead time. Uh, there are some activities that I personally would be interested in. Like if I'm able to golf, like I'm personally a golfer. I, I golf on my high school team and I enjoy it and I would golf every day, maybe 36 holes some days, and to wow, do that... Wow, look at this, Air Michael Pina. 
I know I'm really getting off track here, but I went golfing at a country club in Michigan a few weeks ago when I was over there. And, uh, you know, when you're raking in the sand traps and when you're tending to the pin, uh, like at the country club, that just wasn't an option. So to to decrease, you know, the possibility of uh, the virus getting conducted through those, those surfaces and... I don't understand why in Disney they just don't have them do the same thing instead of use hand sanitizer. That is neither here nor there. But I will say I am excited about that possibility in this hypothetical world where I'm an NBA player getting to participate. I also really want to say one thing that is really interesting to me is, like, I wonder how this entire experience will impact interplayer relationships and with everyone being around everybody else for so long in a very unusual circumstance like are certain players going to drift apart further than they normally would are are certain players going to grow closer together like if i'm playing golf every day with someone who i don't really know that well and then we get to know each other and we really click like i know this is really of minimal importance at the moment but i just wonder how all of this this whole thing could impact like future free agency decisions is something i've been thinking about so you're you're basically seeing a potential tampering olympics but then at the same time <laughs> you're also wondering like how long guys like ben simmons and joel Embiid can pretend to be friends right are they going to be able to make it <laughs> yeah. the full 35 days um so Give me your final takeaway on the health and safety protocol. Thumbs up or thumbs down? Did they win you over? I would say thumbs up. I will not necessarily say that they won me over because I still think that the risk is is too high. And I think that the possibility of something going wrong is just too great to uh, justify all of this happening in the first place. Fair enough. Um, let me ask you, in terms of the gameplay, as we described it, with the kind of the, the, the benches, um, the front bench of players and in, in the coach and four assistants, back bench, inactive players and overflow assistants, basically mm-hmm. the trainers and everybody else wearing masks, ball boys wearing masks, um, public address announcer not wearing a mask because he has to do his job, but a lot of the other courtside people um, wearing masks, referees not wearing masks either. Um what about that gameplay stood out to you? Anything kind of positively or negatively um, or any of the little details we mentioned earlier about, you know, snot rockets and uh, and jersey swaps and everything? Or did it all kind of align with what you were expecting? Yeah, I think a lot of it is common sense, right? Uh, one of the things that I think is really interesting is that players who are not playing are allowed to sit in the stands and watch. So that kind of creates the possibility of like heckling play yeah i mean wouldn't that be incredible uh i don't no, know how no realistic it is no wonder Kyrie is so mad he can't show up michael because he wants to go to the laker games and boo lebron no i mean that would be just like the greatest thing but then that also would that, like i can't even imagine how that would break the internet if a player was caught or whatever you could hear a player just heckling the crap out of another one and just the storylines that would develop from that i want the players to show up with signs like real fans you know it's like (laughs) here we are pulling for whichever guy it'd be it'd be amazing like their college teammates right or old high school teammates or guys from the same hometown like why not show up like i could kind of picture that right 
Yeah, or like, you know, Jason Tatum is really good friends with Bradley Beal. He shows up. I just feel like the tampering and is cheering for his friend. Like, the tampering, I didn't even really put that word into my brain when I was thinking about all this because I haven't thought about tampering as a serious allegation or violation in a very long time. But, like, how do you uh, kind of disentangle tampering as a concept in well, an environment like this? They did have a rule that says no agents allowed in the bubble. And I had somebody tell me that they should <laughs> yeah. they should have just called that the Rich Paul rule because, you know, he might come out after three months and have like 65 new clients, you know? <laughs> like yeah, if, very if you, fair, yeah. So I thought that was a, an interesting point. So that, and they're, they're at least thinking about that, but they realize the player on re, uh, player recruiting stuff is bound to happen. And it's something to absolutely watch. You're raising a great point. Do we come out of this summer after Orlando? And are there new team-up scenarios, right? Are there guys who have said, hey, you know, trying to force a trade from, uh, you know, spot A to spot B? Are there free agents who wind up kind of, uh, you know, seeing how a team conducts itself um, while they're there and, and staying in a lot of close proximity with their teammates and saying, you know, I wouldn't mind playing for a team like that. Those are absolutely things that we should be watching. I'm not sure if as, you know, media members down there are going to be pretty strictly limited from like the players' hotels, for example. So we're not going to be getting live report from the card games about, you know, who's who's teaming up to to win at Bure or anything like, anything like that. But I, I do think that we could see storylines like that emerge here, if not in the offseason come October or November, then, you know, within the next, say, 18-month cycle. I think that's absolutely um, something to keep uh, an eye on. Michael, what did you think about the tiered hotel system, where basically the top four seeds in each conference get to stay at the Grand Destino, the next four seeds in each conference get to stay at the Grand Floridian, and then the six overflow teams uh, get to stay at the Yacht Club. Personally, the Yacht Club is the most appealing to me, but it seemed like that was the one where everybody was kind of mocking it. I don't know if you're an expert on uh, Disney hotel properties. Maybe you can enlighten us on the, the various pros and cons of the different options, but uh, it was a little funny that they separated it by record, right? Is is this for just like logistical reasons where it makes sense to have the best teams in one hotel so that, you know, they anticipate those teams being active for the longest and so they don't have to keep operations going in as many different properties as possible? Like, is that the that would be the rationale, right? Because I don't even understand, you know, are, are there is there any difference between these play these I have, I have like I've never been to this place in my whole life I don't know what the differences are if there are any I would assume they're all equal but uh yeah when you're putting the crappier teams all together it kind of the yacht club doesn't come out looking too good well I think one idea would be the yacht club empties out um after those teams get eliminated right so then you're right, down yeah. maybe to only two properties that you have to kind of secure rather than three I think part of the reason why they're using three is just because there wasn't enough to put everybody into the same one. But it also having some level of separation could prevent a massive outbreak, right? Like if, let's say one team uh, did get sick and they're staying in the yacht club. Theoretically, the teams that are in the the other two properties are you know an added degree safer by not being in their close proximity very regularly. Um, so I, I think that's part of the reason. I do think that having the best teams in that one hotel, it sounds like that's kind of going to be the main uh, NBA kind of fortress, so to speak. So mm -hmm. it would make sense to leave them there so they can get comfortable settled in if they have to be there the whole time. Um, right. But uh, yeah, I don't, 
Why did everybody make fun of the Yacht Club, Michael? Can you please explain that to me? I felt like that was like the on-running joke of like, ha ha, the Wizards are in the Yacht Club. Is it just because there's no actual boats uh, in the middle of Florida because there's not, uh, you know, an ocean uh, within a couple hundred miles or what? These are the distractions that I'm talking about, Ben. Just, it's just <laughs> absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. No, I, I think you, you're on. Uh, you're on to something. I mean, it, it was uh, weird to see how this conversation turned, and the volume of the conversation was just immense on Tuesday. I think that there's a. I mean, it was proof there's a lot of basketball fans who are interested in this experiment. A lot mm-hmm. of sports fans, I think, who are probably excited that at least the league is really trying it in a serious way. Um, question for you these players are weighing personal concerns right um whether it's newborn babies whether it's uh you know their wives being at home potentially and everything else now michael i know you're a married man i don't want to dig too deep um into your personal life but the way they're laying this thing out um you know being separated from your wife for up to three months like how would you process that would you be okay with it if you were a player Would that personal thing weigh into your decision in addition to the health stuff that you've mentioned and the protest stuff that you've mentioned previously? Like, does this seem workable? Would you be counting down the days maybe until the second round of the playoffs where she could come join you? Would you invite her to uh, Disney World? I mean, just kind of that interpersonal dynamic aspect of it. How would you treat that? If I hypothetically would not be willing to invite my wife to Disney World, I sure as hell would not say it on this podcast. But for the record, yes, I would be, uh, I would miss her very much. I would be devastated. I, you know, going that long of a time without seeing her in person would be really difficult. And for the players who have children, um, I think that that is, I, I, do not have kids myself, but I would imagine that that just makes it, that adds another layer to the the difficulty of quarantining for so long away from your family. And a lot of guys have young kids and how difficult it'll be on those kids and those families, especially after this whole period where the past few months have been this really nice, unusual circumstance where the fathers have been home. They're, you know, they're not on the road. They're not doing, taking road trips. They're not uh, away from their family as often as they had. So, so to be so close to and to like keep the families together for as many months as they've been able to, and then suddenly to disrupt that. And it's not even like a road trip. It's just straight up. You're gone for months. Uh, that is really difficult. And I personally would struggle with it. Thank you for calling me out for this stupid question. I think we learned on an episode previously that your wife's family occasionally listens to this show. No offense intended (laughs) to Michael Pina's in-laws. I was just curious how you would handle it because, like, I mean, even bringing family to this thing for, say, six weeks, Mm -hmm. that's, like, kind of a hassle for the family, you know? Like, I I don't want to put myself in, like, the NBA wife perspective but if i get to stay in my normal house as opposed to like trucking down to the yacht club at disney world for six weeks um i don't know if golf i don't know if a golf is enough to to bring me down there i guess is my point i think if you're a little kid then this is just the greatest thing that has ever happened to you especially if uh you know some of the I don't even know like there are there rides or there I'm sure there's like a ton of stuff for kids to do all day well, long it's just their heaven yeah it does sound like there's going to be some separation though from like the actual Disney World experiences to what these guys mm-hmm. are going to be able to do and that might apply and that should apply frankly to families and guests too right because 
if a kid goes out to Disney World and is riding Splash Mountain, gets sick, and brings it back into the bubble, you've compromised the whole bubble again, right? So yeah. it, could, it could be a situation <laughs> where you're like locking a kid in the candy store, right? But all the jars have locks on them, right? So he's like getting to stare at all the candy down in Orlando, but not Dude, actually just, able to that, eat any of it. That is that is literally the saddest analogy anyone has ever said in my presence. Uh, no, that's what really, I'm here for. I wish you never said that out loud, but uh, now I can't stop thinking about it. Yeah, so why are you trying to torture the kids, Michael? What's, what's wrong with you? Um, all right, we can move on here. Look, we got a bunch of awesome questions from the Open Floor Globe, and they emailed us openfloormail at gmail.com openfloormail at gmail.com. We're going to bounce around a little bit. Obviously, a lot of these questions, though, are about um, the NBA's current financial situation, the Orlando plans, and everything in between. This one comes in, Michael, from Professor Matthew at the the Johns Hopkins University. Um, Professor Matthew, class of 2005, not sure if you knew that, but thanks for emailing. He writes, two economics questions and you won't believe this michael but he's an economics professor i don't know if he's trying to fine-tune his syllabus uh, with us or what he writes african americans are underrepresented among nba owners i believe that michael jordan is the only nba team owner who is black what will be the next three teams sold in the nba and will adam silver and the nba leadership seek to identify minority candidates to purchase these teams should potential bidders receive a discount for buying the team? So it's a, a fascinating question. Um, let's start there, Michael. What do you think? I mean, I think where Matthew's head is is really nice, and it is good to point out that only one owner in the NBA is black. That would be Michael Jordan, yeah, who, uh, you know, he earned his wealth playing basketball which it's yeah so anyway um i don't th i just I, i'm very highly skeptical that this would ever happen uh in terms of uh you know getting a discount to buy the team i mean you'd need the seller to take less than he or she would otherwise make and the people who own nba teams really aren't in the business of taking less money than they could otherwise earn <laughs> So I just, I, I don't think that this is realistic. I mean, uh, I, 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 I mean, I, I don't even know how to potentially solve something like this. You need black people to be billionaires, really. And I know that there are a lot of um, black minority owners and, uh, you know, Grant Hill with the Atlanta Hawks and Shaq with the Kings and uh, Jay-Z once with the Brooklyn Nets. But I, I yeah, I don't even really know how to solve this this type of problem i don't think it could happen overnight so yeah my first statement was going to be um you know african americans are underrepresented among nba owners but they're also like underrepresented among billionaires too right and i think yeah. that's that's an issue number two though we have a lot of aspiring billionaires in the nba right now lebron james kevin durant there are other players who are looking to follow the michael jordan path so just because we only have one jordan now doesn't mean if you fast forward another 20 years that there's not three or four other NBA players who have attained that level of wealth to get there. And some of those guys have made it clear that that's a priority. LeBron has said that. Um, Kevin Durant has said that. That's a long-term dream for these guys. And they're trying to build up everything off the court, whether it's their endorsement deals or um, you know their other investment efforts to put themselves in a position to get there. So 
Um, I think also the NBA has shown a desire in the past to bring and keep players in the fold when it comes to ownership groups. You know, David Stern had his hands all over, you know, Michael Jordan trying to you know become the owner of the Charlotte franchise. And Adam Silver, I'm sure, after years and years of a successful partnership with LeBron James as a kind of player and commissioner, would love nothing more than to have him be an owner and to facilitate that. I don't think it's going to come across necessarily as a discount, but we do see the NBA often be a third party in these negotiations. I mean, we saw it with the Sacramento Kings. We saw it when the New Orleans franchise uh, was uh, in trouble before Tom Benson uh, bought them. Um, and we've seen it in other situations where they're just sort of like lining up buyers and, and kind of you know doing the background on, on the buyers, keeping a list of potential buyers on hand and then waiting for the right moment to kind of you know, bring those deals together. So it wouldn't be as simple as, hey, you're going to get a 20% discount in the name of uh, our diversity initiative. But it could mm-hmm. actually be a little bit more of an indirect process where you're saying, hey, we want to make sure these people are, are getting first crack at a team. So that's just something to consider there. Yeah, now, real quick. Real, can I ask you a quick question, Ben? Please. I know we didn't. I'm kind of springing this one on you, but... The other issue here is just that I don't foresee any owners looking to sell anytime soon. Now, maybe the the global pandemic will impact their bottom line and they will need, you know, they would like to kind of cash out. I know there's a certain man in Houston who wouldn't shock me if he wanted to sell the Houston Rockets. So um, are there any other owners that you can even think of who in the foreseeable future would want to get out of the NBA business? Right. And so he was asking this question, too. I mean, there's a couple of franchises who we could say have had terrible owners and that they should really consider cashing out. I mean, I would circle the Phoenix Suns, um, you know, right near the top of that list. There had been. uh, Yeah, there had been some talk about, I think at one point, Minnesota was sniffing around, uh, possibly, Mm -hmm. you know, Glenn Taylor was looking to sell. Um, You know, Memphis was rumored for a while to have some issues, but it seems like those are behind them. Um, you look at New Orleans, there's always been a question of, you know, how much does Gail Benson care about that team? It does seem like now would be the right time to keep that team because their franchise value could accelerate here very quickly, you know, with Zion, you know, being a potential face of the future. Um, you had a health question uh, with Dan Gilbert in Cleveland. Um, ultimately, he's got some very rich and powerful kind of co-owners or minority owners, so it might not be a, a traditional mm-hmm. sale. Um, but a lot of the other organizations are on pretty solid footing. Um, as you're describing. And uh, it's interesting, though, because when you do hit periods of financial volatility, and this like preceded the last lockout, when the market goes bad, that's actually when some people look to cash out and get out. It's a little bit counterintuitive. You think that they would want to sell when the market's good, so the price would be as high as possible. But these franchises have increased so much over the last 10 to 15 years that if your other businesses are taking a hit, um, you're actually thinking like, well, now might be the time to protect myself here by selling my NBA you're, team. You're also still making a humongous profit. I mean, all of these guys will if they look to sell, I would imagine. Um, well, the, the, the profit would be built into based on the sale price that they originally purchased it for, right? So like, yeah, you're, you're making like, you know, five to 10 times what you paid for it probably in most cases. Um, but mm-hmm. that's why people look to sell because it's this idea of, well, if my other businesses are not as profitable and the NBA is going through a tougher time and, you know, ratings go down or whatever else, like, uh, you know, now is the time to cash in on that initial investment rather than just sort of, you know, bring this this organization along. So 
Um, it wouldn't shock me if we came out of this um, this pandemic and there were a few teams available, but there aren't any teams that are like flashing red lights right now that are on the market. Hey guys, what's up? This is Ben Golliver with Sports Illustrated's Open Floor Podcast with a message from Sleep Number. A healthy lifestyle should be easy, right? Eat veggies, drink green smoothies, exercise to get your heart rate up, and do yoga to bring your heart rate down. Wow, well, maybe not so easy, but there is something that helps improve everything, and you can do it with your eyes closed. It's sleep. Sleep Number knows what it takes to sleep your best. The Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed lets you choose your ideal firmness, comfort, and support on each side. Your Sleep Number setting is the perfect solution for couples. These beds are so smart, they respond to your every move and automatically adjust to keep you sleeping comfortably all night. Proven quality sleep is life-changing sleep. And now, during the lowest prices of the season's sale, save $400 on a Queen Sleep Number 360 C4 Smart Bed, now only $1,299. You'll only find Sleep Number at Sleep Number stores or by visiting www.sleepnumber.com slash cadence. That's www.sleepnumber.com slash cadence. C-A-D-E-N-C-E. Professor Matthew also asked a question about stadiums. He says, if there are no fans attending games in 2021, which stadiums and which cities have very attractive revenue generating alternative uses, or will they just be empty every day of the year? Um, I think the the first answer to that question, and maybe you agree, Michael, is that their other revenue generating potentials are often concerts right Mm -hmm. or there are things like rodeos or um, there are things like you know circuses or whatever else and if there's no games there's probably not going to be any of those other normal traditional uses right yeah i mean i had a difficult time with this question because i couldn't think of anything i mean the closest thing i just had in terms of how a stadium is used is you know there's this article about barclays center in brooklyn about how it became this mecca meeting place for Black Lives Matter and uh, a place where uh, protesters were able to organize and start marches and end marches. But that's like obviously on the outside and right out front. Can I give you a really uh, sad counterbalance to that? Mm -hmm. Uh, Here in Los Angeles, they've been using the convention center, which is where I park for, for Lakers games as the staging area for the National Guard. So, oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, Professor Matthew, we've got a few different alternative uses here for these stadiums for you. Yeah, and neither one is revenue generating in any way, shape, or form. Uh, so, yeah, I think if stadiums are empty, which I would anticipate them being for, I guess, until uh, a vaccine is developed, I don't even know when these stadiums will... I mean, like when concerts will come back or when uh, fans will be allowed back in or comfortable enough to sit amongst other fans and watch basketball games. I just don't know when any of that's going to happen. Yeah, so uh, my thought there is it's not going to be a situation where we go from empty arenas to sold-out arenas, right? I think it's Mm going to be one of these gradual things where if you're a team, maybe your hope to recoup revenue is can we let in a 1,000 fans, for the first game, right? And just spread them out all over the arena and convince everybody, hey, it's socially distanced and maybe you're charging them. Eh, maybe you have like a discount, like get in the door price, right? 
from there, can you increase to 2,000 and then 5,000, right? And then I don't know if this would occur during next season, but you just want to like kind of get people comfortable with the idea of returning and letting them know you're doing everything safely. And that's why I think this Orlando bubble is a great experiment for how long does it take players to adapt and, and uh, adjust to being back in a more of a society-like fashion, right? Where you're living and eating with other people and you're going out about your business. And then a similar deal with the stadiums. But, you know, some of this is going to be dictated by local governments. You know, it's very possible that some governors are like, nah, bro, you don't you don't get to host anybody in your arena. Just chill out. We're not done with this. Um, and so that could really create some major challenges for a national league where, you know, you're trying to have games in 30 different markets. But, you know, some of them are just saying no. And some of them are saying, hey, it's wide open. You know, come down to Florida. We don't care if our coronavirus spikes you know we're, we're ready to have miami heat games or, or whatever it might be so that uh, is going to be a thorny issue that will take a while to play out uh, kind of no way around it um all right michael we got another question here from steve in england and he writes dear potty and the brain michael i didn't know if that one was going to stick it probably should not have stuck but here we are steve loved it he writes Thank you both for keeping the podcast coming during these times. I've clocked up 380 kilometers of pod-driven runs since April listening to you guys. Michael, are you a metric expert? I don't know how many miles that is. I am not. Never have been. It's really difficult to translate these things in my brain for whatever reason, but that sounds like a lot. Steve, we're just proving we're ugly Americans over here. We don't know anything about your country or your measuring system. Here it goes. Now I've heard you talk through the possible options for maximizing viewer experience of upcoming NBA games with pumping in fan noise being a viable option. Rather than thinking along those lines of noise playing in the arenas, why not have the best of both worlds? You could broadcast the game in two versions and let the fans choose. Option one, dub in the fan noise over the top of the broadcast. Option two, hear the raw noise and potentially mic'd up players on the floor. Do you think this would be a good option to cover all bases from the NBA's point of view? Michael, so what do you think here? Um, should this be like a let the markets decide type of situation? Yeah, I mean, when I first saw this, it reminded me of when League Pass gave you the option of listening to the home or the away broadcast feed, which has been a true godsend for me personally over the past couple of years. Um I think so you that, just always listen to the Tommy points on every game, basically, is what you're saying? Uh, uh, of course. When he's doing the games, you got to listen. Must listen. Absolute legend. The Hall of Famer. Um, I think that this is a really good idea. My one caveat would be that this would require no fan noise or no uh, sounds to be actually played in reality in the gym, right? So that might be a something that the players push back against, unfortunately. Yeah, the players' buy-in here is tricky because do they want their voices to be heard by people? That's a number one question. And number two, would they prefer to just have some level of music or some level of ambient noise in the stadium to make for a better, a better playing experience? Mm-hmm. Um, we don't know the answers to those questions, and maybe that will come out here over the next couple of weeks. I mean, certainly something that I'm interested in trying to report about is how do the networks plan to handle this? So stay tuned on that one. Um, your general point, though, here, uh, Steve, is well taken because Adam Silver has told me, I did a story about this a while ago, the idea of customizable user experiences. His dream is that you as a fan in England will be able to pick your um, broadcast, you know, even down to the camera, whichever one you would like, uh, you know, in terms of your favorite angle. 
Um, you know, maybe if you want to watch a player, I know they've they've brought that out at various points in their their products. But also, if you want to just like pick one camera angle and stick to that, or if you want a more immersive like virtual reality type experience, he wants every fan anywhere in the globe to be able to kind of customize what they're seeing from a video standpoint, and then also customizing their audio feed. They've got it down so far, Michael. In the future, they want potentially podcast dorks like us to be able to provide in-game commentary of games as they're taking place and that somebody could flip a switch and you know get rid of the ESPN guys and turn us on uh, as their uh, as their audio what do you think of that idea is that our future are we going to be calling games and competing head-to-head against Tommy points is that actually a thing that would be incredible uh, well I... not, not yet it's it's on the okay. table it's what they want they're hoping to just basically have you know like fan generated or user generated experiences being an option that is available for any individual viewer to pick from you got my hopes up there. Uh, when I watch games, usually alone in my living room, I'm pretty... I don't know if I am I would say I'm entertaining. I ask a lot of questions out loud to no one, and uh, usually they are derisive and uh, not very nice. So I think uh, I would be perfect for this, and I, I think people would like listening to me. Um, that's just my... my Michael, you have now volunteered for the Truman Show on the <laughs> on the exact same episode that you were expressing concerns about the level of security in the bubble. Um, I'm getting, once again, contradictory messages from you, Michael. That's just how I do it. I'm a very uh, complex person. This isn't a black or white issue. Yeah, there's there's layers to you. There's no question. Mm-hmm. We're learning about these layers. Seven-layer burrito pina, okay? <laughs> uh, here comes a question from Kevin. He writes... I certainly hear what Kyrie and the other players are saying, but I tend to agree with the Austin Rivers and Garrett Temples, who have been saying that being on the court and earning money will provide a financial means for many players to support the Black Lives Matter's cause financially. I also believe that the NBA, along with ESPN and TNT, can do way more than the players can when it comes to these games broadcasted. Some suggestions. Maybe before every commercial break, the networks have a prominent uh, person speak on behalf of the Black Lives Matter movement. At halftime, one segment could be dedicated to the Black Lives Matter movement and what people can do to help racism um, that is rampant in our society. Pre-game, you could have uh, a story where someone's speaking on behalf of the movement, whether it's players, coaches, politicians, activists, and so on. Um, So, Michael, you get this idea that he's, um, he's laying out here. It doesn't just have to be a player on a post-game podium, right? They could try to go to ESPN and TNT and say, hey, we need some built-in stories and built-in discussion um, about uh, you know our, our feelings and our thoughts on this. Again, we're looking at a time period of potentially 80 or 90 days with hours of content going out on national television night after night after night, essentially with no competition you know, from the sporting uh, atmosphere. Do, do you sort of get what he's saying about this idea? If you made it coordinated, if you leaned on the other partners who are going to be down there um, and you came up with a plan that there could be, um, you know, some real force behind this and not just, um, you know, not just the, uh, the, oh, we're trying to use our platform, but like something more substantive. I mean, yeah, I, I, I see what Kevin is saying. I think still at the end of the day, this is just such a, a personal decision and so like i don't know it's tough when you say like i agree with one side over the other um and that kind of gets a little sticky and uh you know there was a, a WNBA player who right before we 
started recording this episode, Renee Montgomery, who said that she was going to sit out the the upcoming WNBA season to focus on social justice reform. Uh, so I think it's like, it, yes, the platform can be amplified uh, with coordinated efforts with ESPN and, and Turner and that sort of thing. But like for every time someone brings up Tommy Smith and John Carlos raising their black fist at the 1968 Olympics in Mexico City, there is uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar who boycotted those Olympics and chose not to play, which I think is maybe lesser known, but uh, equally powerful. Uh, And he boycotted for those exact same reasons that they raised their fists. So I think there's two sides to every coin here. Both can be... um, useful and again it goes back to like what we discussed at length in our last episode and what i said at the top which is just there's no real right answers here right i i I just think that if your player is going to go it's now on the agents and the marketing guys and the people who are you know supporting that player if he cares passionately about it but he's made the tough decision to go rather than stay out how can you help him feel like he's part of this movement still how can you help him connect with um, the people around him. And it's not just on the agents and pl- on the players, uh, you know, representatives. It's also on the league to really get serious about making this a concerted thing. So it's not just tacked on at the end where it's, you know, just woven into the fabric of the broadcast. That's what I'm hoping for. That's what I'm envisioning um, because so many of these players care about it and they should push hard for that because why not? They are the reason why the league is coming back. Their talent is what people want to watch. And, uh, you know, this is a situation where I think that, like, it's just the opposite of stick to sports, you know. Um, these guys are making a, a decision here potentially to go along with the show. They should be the show, you know, whatever's on their mind and, and not only their athletic uh, achievements. All right, we got a great question from my buddy Dipped Anu, and he's in the Bay Area. You know, he's probably uh, out there trying to become a big-time entrepreneur, and so he's got some ideas for the players, okay? He writes... Ben briefly mentioned in passing that if there's a lockout, the players will talk about playing overseas, maybe trying to create their own league, etc. I think forming their own league is a pretty interesting idea. If the NBA is a business like any other, why can't it have competition from another for-profit league? Let's say LeBron, Chris Paul, etc. all form an association and raise money from venture capitalists like SoftBank, Sequoia Capital, um, just like any other business in the United States. They could create teams, uh, you know, attract television contracts, and then it's just a matter of getting the talent to this new league. Raising money from venture capitalists means that they would own a certain part of the company, which gets complicated um, if they're on the board and trying to dictate the direction of the league and profit sharing and all those kinds of things. So it has to be done in a different way, but something like this should be possible. If it really took off, then you can go down the direction of a public company running the league where regular people can have a stake in the league as well. In other words, sort of selling stock and and shareholders. Um, The owners could bring the capital to the table, uh, but I don't see why you couldn't raise capital from other sources. Look, this is a big endeavor, and we are asking athletes who are good at basketball to do more than just play the game. But if they hired the right people for these things, just like any other business, it could work. It might not be as profitable as the NBA in the first year, but over a longer period of time, it could pick up. What do you guys think? So there was some discussion this week, Michael. Supposedly Kyrie Irving was texting his teammates about, hey, could we go form our own league? And there was a big backlash to that, everybody making fun of Kyrie Irving again. 
it's something that came up during the last lockout when the NBA players were looking for avenues of, of leverage and just trying to like say like, what could we possibly do here? Um, and just, you know, realizing that when you are playing a sport that's essentially a monopoly in the United States, you don't have a, a ton of other options. Now we do realize, you know, the top 10 players have an extraordinary uh, hold uh in terms of basketball circles, right? So many people care about what LeBron and Katie and Steph Curry are doing. And a lot of the other players are, are sort of along for the ride, um, if that makes sense. So if those main players did try to strike out on their own, it would be something that would wake up everybody. Um, I'm curious, do you think that there's any uh, possible universe here in the short term where players would be able to pursue something like this? Um, or is it just a pipe dream? Pipe dream. I don't I don't think that this will ever happen uh, and I don't really know what the incentive is for the players who actually matter to want to go along with something like this I mean who are their corporate partners who is broadcasting it uh, you know the point of this is a for-profit business and there should be competition is nice but in reality, the NBA and the NFL and MLB are monopolies for a reason. There is only so much talent that can uh, that is like in existence in the world that could make those leagues thrive. So, like, I, I theoretically, if LeBron, Kawhi, and uh, Giannis and all these guys were just like, yeah, you know what, the the tens of millions of dollars, the hundreds of millions of dollars that we're making in this league from our being paid from our teams um uh yeah we don't want to be a part of that anymore we want to start off uh, start our own thing and take a humongous pay cut i just don't know why that would ever happen uh and then you're also still competing against the nba which would still exist in a world where you know they have 30 established billion dollar plus franchises that are already recognized across the globe. Like, I, I don't understand why they would want to do it. It's very tricky. They're almost, the players are almost a victim of their own success here. I mean, if we're talking about, hey, could they create a situation where they're able to be millionaires as players? I could see that happening if they started their own league. Um, you know, there would be some level of, of support and, and sponsorship, no question. Um, I mean, on a smaller level, we've seen it with like the big three, you know, it's kind of a fledgling league, but they've been able to keep getting television deals. Um, and, you know, if you're having players who are in their prime and not retired, uh, you imagine those deals would be bigger. But the players have gotten this, this league to a position where they're making tens of millions of dollars, 30, 40, 50 million dollars a year. That's an incredibly high bar to try to match at any time in the, in the short term future. And as you're saying, you're doing it with uh, new organizations that don't have history, that don't have built-in fan bases, that don't have their own branding power and everything else. It's a real, real major undertaking. Um, so I think that uh, I'm not in the full pipe dream category, but I do think it would be very difficult for these guys to do that. You know, one thing that kind of shocked my system was during the lockout the uh, last time around, the players tried to have their own like players only league in Las Vegas. And they were doing some advertising on local radio, trying to get the word out. They put out a few press releases saying, hey, come basically watch us play pickup five on five. And there was guys like Jared Dudley, Kyle Lowry were there. I mean, there was a, you know, a decent selection of players. I don't think there was any um, of like the top five or 10 players in the league, but you know, it wasn't complete no namers. And I remember expecting there to be like, you know, thousands of fans in attendance at this when I showed up to cover it. Just thinking like, oh, it's sort of like a high school game, you know, like high schools can always draw 
a couple thousand people. I mean, there was basically nobody there. You know, nobody wanted to go watch those games. <laughs> and I'm not trying to say that to make fun of these players, but I do want everyone to realize, you know, it's it's possible to be on the side of the little guy and, and to support the players and their movements, but also realize that they're operating in a structure which does help them, which does enhance them. You know, LeBron going to play for the Lakers, that's a win-win, right? I mean, mm-hmm. the Lakers are so glad to have LeBron but LeBron is absolutely cashing in on the Lakers brand and their position within the league and you know their diehard fan base and everything else. And so it's a little bit of a two-way street, maybe more than some uh, people want to acknowledge. And it would be a massive undertaking for them to be able to, uh, to put a league together. And I think we should also point out the Players Union has had a hard time, um, you know, everybody paddling in the same direction. You know, that's been a persistent issue for them for the last 10 or 15, 20 years and so now you're looking into a situation where the players' union becomes the league. Um, that could lead to some internal squabbles or differences of opinion and everything else. And um, you know, not to say they couldn't do it. Uh, you know, I don't want to write them off and, and dismiss them, but I just think it would be maybe more challenging than uh, some people might assume. All right, Michael, we're, we're running out of time here, but I want to quickly get in a couple more. Mads writes, do you guys think there is any chance that if the players end up going for the games in Orlando, some players will demonstrate on the court, whether it's not participating in the game um, or, you know, maybe it's kneeling before the game. He says, I wish you well from a true fan in the capital of Denmark, Copenhagen. All right, Mads, uh, the home of Lego, my favorite pastime. Congratulations. Thanks for emailing. Um, Michael, have you given any more thought to possible protest ideas from these players during games the the point that mads makes in his question of uh players not participating in the game when they're on the court i think is probably a step too far i don't i don't know if anyone's gonna fly down and to to florida and live in a bubble so that they can just not play on the court i think visually it might be pretty stunning and and maybe even powerful but also like a tad silly uh, and potentially just like a waste of time and energy. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of tough to just, there's a lot of the obvious ones, you know, uh, drawing attention during the national anthem by kneeling or uh, not standing or whatever it is that players want to do um, or taking a knee for eight minutes and 46 seconds before the game in a moment of silence would be very powerful. Uh, I think that there's going to be a lot of dramatic forms of protest that we see and that are, are well-intentioned and that come from a good place. But at the end of the day, I, I do personally just think that the actual play will overwhelm the protest. And that is, in my opinion, unavoidable because people watch these guys because they want to see what they do on a basketball court. They do not necessarily watch them to get educated about uh, social justice. Yeah, I'm with you on a lot of what you said. This idea of boycotting a game, though, I could see that happening. Like, And this is a horrible hypothetical, but we're seeing right now in California, Texas, you know, uh, black men uh, found hanging in trees, dead, mm-hmm. and they're being labeled as suicides, right? Um, and there's some question from the families, you know, he had no suicidal tendencies. You know, was this somebody who got lynched? And the, the police are trying to, uh, you know, maybe investigate that in certain situations. If something like that were to continue and the players are all down there reading those headlines and furious, 
Don't you think there would be some level of power of doing what Craig Hodges suggested in the 91 finals after the Rodney King incident? And basically he was trying to convince Magic and Michael to to boycott a game, to send a message. Like if you go out there and it's the Lakers, Clippers, Western Conference finals, and something has happened, say in Los Angeles, where, you know, it's people are really, really upset. These guys go out there for their scheduled game. And rather than leaving their, um, you know, their sweatsuits at center court, like the Clippers did during the Donald Sterling er uh, fiasco, they just flat out boycott it. And they say, we're not playing. And, you know, maybe there's some, you know, post-game press conference where, LeBron's up on stage, you know, addressing things. Paul George is addressing things, whatever it might be. Um, I think that could really resonate, right? Because again, yeah. all eyes would be on these guys. I'm not sure it would come off as corny, Michael. It might actually have a. It might actually have a point. No, I mean, when you phrase it that way, I mean, I was kind of positing it in a different context. But when you phrase it that way, I I do think that would be very powerful. And hearing players, uh, you know maybe even say that, hey, we're not taking the court and playing another game until we see, uh, say, Breonna Taylor's murderers brought to justice or charged or something like that. Uh, I think something like that would be uh, extremely powerful and extremely effective because then you have no choice but to, uh, I mean, I would imagine that the, the the, the government in, in Louisville would have no choice but to act at that point because the entire world would be looking at them even more under a harsher microscope than they're already uh, beneath. So uh, from that perspective, yeah, I do think that it would be very, 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 very powerful. That's a great example. This is what I mean about people around the players. Get creative. Make your brainstorm list, right? What is it that your players care about? How can you express it? This is going to be an incredible opportunity to do it. Um, all right, last question here, Michael. He writes in, uh, Gerard from Melbourne. And I think you taught me how to say that. Say it again. Melbourne? Yeah, there you go. He says, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Another Australian listener coming to you. God, we love Australia, don't we, Michael? He says, I'm a huge fan of the show and I never miss an episode. It makes my commute to work something to look forward to. In Australia, we have obviously been combating the virus as well with regard to our sport and coming up with ways to reduce travel for teams to play each other. Our national sport is the Australian Football League, and they have decided to create hubs in certain cities where a group of surrounding teams stay for a few weeks and play each other in a kind of a mini tournament series and then fly to a different hub for a few weeks in order for all teams to play one another with minimal travel. My question is, do you think this could work for next year's NBA season? Maybe they could have five hubs that the teams travel to throughout the year. How might it look? So Gerard's getting way ahead of us, and we don't need to lay out the entire 2020-2021 season, Michael, but we have seen NHL propose this idea of hub cities. We realize that the, the arenas are likely to be empty for at least a chunk of next year. It doesn't make sense to have these teams flying around on charter jets if they're going to be playing in empty arenas. Do you think that they could come up with a bubble or multiple bubbles or hub cities um, for next year? Is is that what you're starting to you know prepare for? Am, am I preparing for it? Uh, uh, no, Do you have a checklist, I'm not, but, Michael. Do you have yeah. a, a priority I, of I, every I, single hub city based on <laughs> your own personal you know valuation and ranking, or what? I think generally this seems like a pretty solid idea. I keep coming back to how ridiculous it seems to just have 30 NBA teams just flying all over the country to play in front of no one. I don't know how that would work at all. I also don't know what 
hubs or, or would be selected and how that would all kind of figure itself out. But generally, you know, I'd have to give this a little more thought. Um, but I think it's a it's generally a pretty good idea. And as I said in the last episode, anytime anyone is coming up to us with an idea from Australia or New Zealand, it's usually spot on. And I'll add this one to the list. Well, unlike you, Michael, I've been mentally preparing myself for next season uh, <laughs> extensively over the last couple of weeks. And I don't see any way they're going to use 30 markets, right? It just doesn't make any sense. So from that standpoint, I think that they will evaluate how this Orlando situation works. And rather than having five separate hub cities, Gerard, I could easily see them bringing basically the whole league uh, down to Orlando and doing the whole thing again next year. That's just me personally speculating. But if they can fit 22 teams down there, I'm pretty sure they could add the extra eight. And it would you know, have a level of familiarity for the players. Now, the crazy part to consider is an NBA season is like six months long, right? So if they're keeping these guys in isolation for that long, it gets really dicey, especially after a lot of them had just been in there for three months. Um, that's where it gets tricky. You might have to just do the season in segments, right? Where you're like playing six weeks of games, releasing guys to go home, you know, coming back and doing another six weeks of games, something along those lines. Um, they also could potentially try to add other hubs. I mean, we heard a lot of talk about maybe Las Vegas would be the home of the Western Conference teams for this summer. It didn't pan out that way, but that could be another option. It will really be determined by how much progress the United States has made against the coronavirus by that point um, in December. If it's still a daily um, you know, threat uh, in, in a, such a major way as it is right now, their options are going to be limited, just like their options are limited right now. So I think that people should be mentally preparing for this idea of uh, you know, a, a compromised season next year. And I think it's also worth uh, underscoring here. Finally, Michael, the uncertainty about next year surely weighed into their motivation, their decision to try to do something right now. Um, mm -hmm. You know, they're, of course, they're chasing the dollars and trying to recoup the financial losses from uh, you know, the suspension of this season. But not knowing what comes next does force your hand in terms of like trying to create a workable solution here in the short term, because, you know, tomorrow in this case really isn't promised in terms of, you know, when are we going to be in a, a post-COVID world? So I think that's just, you know, one other thing to kind of watch as, as we're getting closer to this Orlando idea. What's working? What isn't? Would it be sustainable over a longer period of time? And are we going to need to just get used to watching guys play in empty gyms for the foreseeable future? Um, you know, it's quite possible. I mean, somebody asked me last week, like, when's the next day you think you're going to be covering a game in person at Staples Center, right? And that's presuming there's going to be fans there as well. And my initial answer was like October 2021. Does that sound crazy to you, Michael? I mean, it, that would wipe out all of next year. I mean, what do you think? It does not sound crazy to me. It it does sound incredibly depressing. I enjoy going to NBA games, and uh, I yeah, it's it's really difficult to project that far out. Though again, we like we don't know. You know, I've read different medical professionals say that they can't even imagine. Uh, uh, fans being in stadiums next season for the NBA uh, and but at the same time like everything is just so fluid about all of this and the world that we live in and so I'm not like 100% ruling out that possibility but also what you're saying about October 2021 it being a reasonable timeline is perfectly fair and reasonable. 
Well, Michael, I don't want to uh, close on such a negative note, so I just want to remind you and keep your head up. I'm going to try to keep my head up. We have a guy named Steve who is just banging out the kilometers in England who is willing to refer to us as potty in the brain. Okay, just keep that in mind. Let that carry you through on a happier note. Uh, throughout the rest of your day guys thanks so much for the great emails we didn't even get to all of them michael so we're gonna have to roll some of those over to next week but keep them coming open floor mail at gmail.com open floor mail at gmail.com and guys check us out on apple Podcasts by searching for open floor that's two words when you find our page scroll down it will say rate and review tap five stars it's just that easy to help us spread the word michael is on twitter and instagram at Michael Villas and Victor Pina. Like I said, he's got some banger tweets out there recently, so you better follow him. Um, I'm on Instagram at Ben Golver, on Twitter at Ben Golver. Michael, until next week, I will talk to you. Talk soon, Ben. <laughs> <laughs>